call to prayer. We find uh, from Genesis through Revelation consistent admonitions that are made to the people of God to be people of prayer. And in reality, we find being an individual of prayer is really a hard thing to do. Very often, it's because we don't recognize, I need thee, every hour I need thee. We're content in our own abilities, thinking we're able to handle and do whatever may come. And often in a time of crisis, we recognize our resources aren't adequate. And so we ask God for His intervention and help. We're told in the Scriptures that God's people are to be characterized as a people of prayer. And to realize that through our great High Priest, Jesus Christ our Lord, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And there we find grace and mercy to help in every time of need. David understood the importance of prayer and even the reality of prayer in his own life and under the direction of the Spirit of God preserved instruction for us about its relevance and its importance. And we find that in Psalm 32. And I'd like you to turn with me into Psalm 32 that we might look at what God has to say through His servant David about the relevance of prayer and even what should motivate us to prayer as we look at his example. David acknowledges that this is penned by him. It is a psalm of David. He doesn't give us really any historical background to this psalm, but it is recognized as one that is reflective of God's answers to the petitions that he had made recorded for us in Psalm 51. And after his sin with Bathsheba, with her husband Uriah, and God dealing with David in discipline, but in forgiving him for his offenses. This song, he tells us, is a masquil. And that phrase masquil means it is a song to be thought about. We're to contemplate. We're to think carefully about the truths that are recorded here. When we look at Psalm 32, what we really have is a praise song. It is a song where David is offering his gratitude to God, his appreciation to God, his thanksgiving to God for God's blessing of him. And what type of blessing was David focusing in Psalm 32? The greatest of all blessings, it is the blessing of forgiveness. Now you and I in our situations with individuals um, recognize that we often either need forgiveness from someone else or they need to ask us of forgiveness, right? Right? Because in our relationships with one another, we often say things, do things, are harmful to, detrimental to somebody even that we love. And so, I'm sorry. And we make amends. We get the forgiveness and we move on. 
And what we need to recognize when it comes to God, while God is a being of forgiveness far greater than is true of any one of us, this forgiveness is not just personal, it is judicial. This forgiveness has to do with the fact that we have violated the character of God and the very code of conduct that God has given to us. We have offended the King of glory. And we stand guilty before him for our judicial wrongs. This means we are standing before God as a judge. And David is recognizing when I look at my offenses against God and I am justly condemned by God for those offenses, he says, how blessed. What a wonderful situation to be in. Words cannot begin to describe how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He repeats it. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord, to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is providing this song of expressing the blessedness, the circumstance for the person who is the object of divine favor and is experiencing forgiveness from him. It is a song of joyous praise. And it is to be true of each one of us. As we look at the concentration or the concept that we find in this song, David is saying to us, if you can identify with me, you are in a unique circumstance of good favor before God. And the reality is, if God has put you in that place of good favor, nothing can alter it, nothing can change it, even your offenses to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. He doesn't hold it against His people ever again. As we look at this psalm, it really falls into three parts, three stanzas, three ideas. In first uh, verses 1 and 2, David expresses this celebration, this indescribable joy that is his to be an individual to whom the Lord does not hold their sins, his sins, against him. In verses 3 through 5, David speaks about in his situation his confession of his sin to God. And then in verses 6, really through verse 11, the counsel that he gives to those who like him are the objects of divine favor. As David expresses his joy in his sin forgiven, he uses three phrases to speak of this offense against God. He says it is transgression, it is sin, it is iniquity. 
As we look at the idea of transgression, it means that I have stepped over the boundaries of what God has established that are really for my good. I have succumbed to doing that which is outside of what God says is for my well-being and His glory. I have been disloyal in my relationship with God and I have therefore transgressed. The second, he says, is that I have sinned. And this is the phrase that we commonly know of where we think of it as falling short or missing the intended object or mark. Because sin is not you or I living up to what God created us to be. Let us make man after our image. Nor created us to do that we are expressing through our attitudes and actions the God of whom we mirror. We fall short. We miss the mark. We sin. He also says it's a perversion. It's a corruption. It is iniquity. We are perverse in our being. But David says, how blessed. Do you really think about your situation? As you go through life, if you are one of his children, how blessed is the individual that God does not take into account the wrongs that you have done and do do. The joy that is the part of God's people's experience to know that my sins are forgiven. It's called grace. David didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. If you're a child of his, you don't deserve it either. But God has determined never to place on your account the offenses, the judicial guilt that you have before him. Then David expresses what happened to him in his circumstance. For he says in verses 3 and following, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You know what that's called? The convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And if you can transgress, if you can miss the mark, if you can pervert and corrupt what is to be true of you, and God doesn't deal with you, you have every reason to be afraid. Because God is faithful as a heavenly Father who disciplines every son whom He receives. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter uh, 12? If you're without discipline, you're just not one of His. And if I can be smug about my lifestyle that's contrary to what God says is to be true, if I don't have a desire for doing what pleases God and God leaves me alone about it, I don't share in the experience of David. God made David miserable. And that was not just for a short period of time. 
If we are looking at this circumstance in David's life with his sin against Bathsheba, we are talking about almost a year period of time where David bit his lip, where he hid his sin. He said, I'm not going to acknowledge I've done wrong. And David said, your hand was heavy upon me. You kept pushing me to where I bathed my bed in tears every night. I began to find my physical strength was being sapped away. And then what made the difference? I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Took care of my guilty conscience. He set me free. He liberated me. If I am an object of God's grace, to whom He does not impute iniquity, I am also an object of His grace in not letting me get away with wrongdoing. He will chasten. He will discipline. He will convict until like David... He says, I'm not covering it up anymore. I'm not going to ignore it any longer. I'm not going to try to find a way to work my way out of it. David connived to try to cover up his offenses. God said, you're not getting away with it. I acknowledge my sin to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I now have a clear conscience. And this goes back to his statement where he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is not talking about an individual who is sinless, but he is talking about an individual that comes clean and is no longer trying to hide, cover up the wrongs that are true in his or her life. Deceit means I'm playing this game where I am a hypocrite acting one way and trying to hide and cover up what is really going on. David is saying, God in His grace didn't leave me alone. And the outcome was, and notice just as he uses three phrases to speak of his offenses, he mentions those same three all over again, where he says in verse uh, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. Didn't go and tell everyone else, although everyone else becomes aware of it. The real issue is between me and God. And this word to acknowledge means I made it known. I declare to you I have done wrong. And what is it that he acknowledged? His sin. His missing the mark. Not living up to what God created him to be or redeemed him. My iniquity, that perversion that uh, distortion, that corruption within me, I didn't keep hiding it. I didn't keep it under wraps. I exposed it. And I confess. In fact, it's interesting that the root word to confess is associated with the word to praise. It means I am thinking the same about what I did that God said. I'm not saying, well, I'm going to take my chances before God. You know, I'm a pretty good person. You all need to worry about it, but not me. I'm pretty good. God said, there's none good. No, not one. I confess that. I recognize that if God would hold my offenses against me, I have no hope of being acceptable to Him. 
I confess my transgressions to the Lord. And boy, there's liberation. And you forgave me for the guilt of my sin. I've been liberated. I have a clear conscience. He's not convicting me of wrongdoing anymore. This is called grace. Grace won't impute your offenses. God won't hold them against you. Grace is God working so that you can't live with yourself when you've done wrong until you come clean before God. And you know what that is? It's a call to prayer. I don't think we understand grace. That's why it's so hard to pray. That's why David goes on and says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly do what? Pray. Pray. See, I can define grace. I understand that grace is a principle. I can understand that grace is a state of being. I can understand that grace is a power at work. But I want to tell you something. I can't comprehend grace. And the more I study the scripture and the more I learn about God, the, little, the less I think I really know what grace is all about. Grace is amazing. Grace is something that transcends our comprehension. And if I really, instead of just saying, well, but by the grace of God, there go I, if I'm an individual that can say, well, thanks be to God for His grace, and it's only mere words, instead of being able to say, you know, God will never hold any of my offenses against me. God will never let me walk away from Him to do what is wrong without dealing with me and bringing Him back. It is the operation of grace that should cause me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. For surely in a flood of great waters, what's the figure? Well, we're talking about uh, threatening weather today. The biggest problems are possibly lightning and then flooding. Flooding isn't fun. Hail isn't fun. David is talking about a circumstance where it is beyond our capability to control it. It's when we get blindsided, everything's going well. Don't wait to pray then when you got the problem. If you understand grace... It ought to motivate you to cultivate your relationship with God right now. Prayer is something that is appropriate for God's people. Prayer is something that will be part of the experience of God's people when they recognize the goodness and the graciousness of their Heavenly Father. For surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach Him. Why not? Because if I have called upon Him and cultivated that relationship when I'm not emotionally distressed, when things aren't going wrong, what do I find when the flood waters come? You're my hiding place. God is my rock and my refuge, the ever-present help in any time of trouble. You're the one that preserves me from trouble. And in the midst of it, what does He surround me with? 
victory songs. Songs of praise and songs of deliverance. And in the next few verses, it's like God is now speaking to us through David. For he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And what is it God as a loving heavenly father says to us, his children, when he tells us about the importance of cultivating our relationship with him, when he calls us to prayer? I need to realize that prayer is not just positioning God for our needs. Even more importantly than that, prayer is climbing up on the lap of our Heavenly Father and telling Him thank you and that I love you. It is cultivating that relationship with Him. So like a little child who seems to be oblivious to the problems that are going on as long as I'm either being held by my mom or dad or I'm walking along holding on to the hand of my mom or dad and I think no harm will fall to me because you are my hiding place. You're the one that delivers me from trouble. You're the one that fills me with songs of praise. And so what does God say? Don't be like a horse or like a mule. Don't be like David and cover up your offenses because what's coming is God's going to pull you in check. He's going to discipline. He's going to chasten. He's going to convict. And if you're one of His, because of the goodness and grace of God, He won't let you alone until what? You acknowledge your sin to Him and understand and experience the forgiveness of the guilt of your sin. So he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord, here it is, Marcia, chesed, God's covenant faithfulness, God's loving kindness to his own, What will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord? If you are one of His children, the answer is absolutely nothing. Who has the power to snatch you away from Him? You know what the answer is? Absolutely no one. You are kept in the covenant loyal love, the chesed of God. And once God has established that relationship with you as one of His children, I can know that I will be surrounded, engulfed in the covenant faithfulness of God. So what should be the tenor of my life as I go through each day? Be glad in Yahweh. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice O you righteous ones. And shout for joy. The victory shout. Of those. Who are acceptable to God. Upright in heart. Have been washed in the blood of Christ. I appreciate Sid. But I am thankful I don't have to stand before Sid when he's sitting on the bench as Judge Farrar. 
all of us have to answer to the supreme judge of all. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But there is no greater relief, no greater sense of well-being than to know that that supreme judge will never, on his, uh, in his courtroom, stamp down the gavel and say, guilty. No appeal. Eternal damnation. He will never say that to any one of his children. I loved my dad. When I did wrong, I didn't look forward to going and meeting him. But the beauty here is that our Heavenly Father is a God of grace. And what David is telling us is if you're doing what's right or you've done what's wrong, there's only one place for you to run. Therefore, let everyone that is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. It is a recognition that while God does not let his children get away with sin, it is a realization that God may not remove the consequences of our wrongdoing and what we have sown we may have to reap. It is the beauty of knowing God will never judicially hold my offenses against me. And the reason he does that judicially is because the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And the wrath that I deserve for my wrongdoing was poured out on him. And if I am one of those, as the psalmist said here, who is trusting in the Lord, I have every reason to recognize how blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. I have every reason to have joy and uh, exuberance as I go through each day, knowing that God will never abandon me. He'll remain faithful to me in His covenant, loyal love. And I have the privilege of cultivating my relationship with my Heavenly Father. So when the problems of life come, I have a hiding place to protect me, to watch over me, and to keep me. If there was ever a greater call to prayer, it is the realization that our God is a God of grace. And in grace, He continually deals with His people as He moves to conform every one of us into the image of His dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we just...